This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. A jolt. That's what scientists are calling the absolute heat record set around the world this January and February of 2016. In just a minute, expert meteorologist and climate science writer Bob Henson will take us on a tour of the new normal. But hang around, too, for our second interview with Australian scientist Ben Hankamer. He's co-author of a new peer-reviewed paper that says warming will happen much faster than you think. To avoid going into dangerous climate change, Ben says this. If what the model suggests are correct, then by 2020, we might have to have about emissions reductions of 50% if we want to stay below a 1.5 degree climate change level. If we want to stay below two, it might be about 50% by 2030. And it really depends if you want to go down this pro-growth strategy or whether you want to carry on this business as usual. Of course, you can say we're not going to do that, but then you have to also make the assumption that you will keep people in poverty. That's coming up in our second half hour. First, let's get past the weather porn to explore another step up the staircase to climate catastrophe. February smashes Earth's all-time global heat record by a jaw-dropping margin. That's the headline at Wonderground, the influential weather underground blog. What does it mean? Is the new carbon-loaded atmosphere stretching its muscles? Is this the new normal? Or is it the end of normal? Joining us to talk about all this is a seasoned meteorologist, journalist, and one-time storm chaser, Colorado's Bob Henson. Bob co-wrote one of the most widely used college textbooks on weather, Meteorology Today, now out in its 11th edition this year. For more than a decade, Bob has had a front row seat as the writer and editor for Atmos News from the National Center for Atmospheric Research. His articles are published all over the world, and his latest book is The Thinking Person's Guide to Climate Change. Bob often teams up with Wonderground's Jeff Masters to bring out all the facts and figures about the strange changes we see today. Bob Henson, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to Radio EcoShock. Oh, my pleasure, Alex. You are definitely an experienced science journalist. Yes, and I, I did do graduate work in both meteorology and journalism at Oklahoma. And actually, my original interest was in severe weather and still is, as you uh, alluded to. So it was after my interest in tornadoes and severe thunderstorms that I became interested in climate and climate change. And that was actually way back in the 1990s during my initial years at at UCAR and NCAR, uh, where I was actually full-time for 25 years before I joined Weather Underground a year ago. All right. Now, the data on shocking new records that are set already in this year of 2016 that you reported on, that comes from NASA. Is that correct? Uh, it does, yeah. There are several agencies around the world that keep tabs on monthly temperature. Uh, as you can expect, it's not an easy thing to do because we don't have weather stations equally distributed around the planet. So we have to basically analyze the data that we do have from uh, thousands of stations on land areas and also from uh, shipboard readings around the globe and to some extent from satellite measurements of, of ocean temperature. So all those things are, are fed into the mix. And Several agencies look at those and use different techniques to come up with the global average. So the global averages are very, very similar. They're not identical. So sometimes one year will be a bit higher in one ranking than in another's agency ranking. But 
NASA was the first this month to come out with their global analysis, and it really was a, a shocking number. We're going to have NOAA's analysis uh, later this coming week, and the Japan Meteorological Agency is also coming out with the numbers. To be clear, those numbers seem to point out a global average temperature that in February came fairly close to the 1.5 degrees C, the supposed safe level raised at the Paris Climate Talks in December, not in 2100 or 2050 even, but almost right now. That's pretty scary, don't you think? Uh, It is scary. Now, just some context for that. When we talk about the 1.5 C threshold, that was the the ideal number that, that came out of the Paris Agreement. That's really, I think in most eyes, considered to be a number that you would take on a a multi-year average, or in other words, where we're kind of sitting globally in the long term, not necessarily the first time we hit it. You might think of an analogy to that as, you know, the average high in a city is 80 degrees in the summertime. Well, let's say in in, uh, late May, all of a sudden you hit 95. It's not really the start of summer. It's just a a blip, but it certainly is pointing the direction you're going to be headed that summer. So, the global reading, in fact, was about 1.35 degrees centigrade above the average for February. Now, that's like comparing it to the baseline of 1951 to 1980, which is what NASA uses. So, again, you have to watch the baselines because different agencies use different baselines. The upshot of all this is that we, we're really spiking right now. We're, we're going through several months of extreme global warmth. If we were to stay at these levels for the next umpteen years, then yeah, we would be very close to the 1.5. Fortunately, uh, this is being goosed to a large extent by El Nino. It's, it's going to probably drop in the next few months back down to a level that will still be warmer than we've seen in this whole century plus of human-induced warming. So we are still in some hot water, and it's uh, still disconcerting how high it is. But uh, we're still, I think, a ways, probably several decades from hitting the certainly the two-degree mark that, that people are concerned about, the two-degree Celsius over pre-industrial warming. Well, I'm a little concerned that NASA is using such relatively recent years. I mean, 1950 to 1980, uh, the Industrial Revolution started at least in 1880 and, and maybe earlier. Michael Mann said that the warming even started before that. So how much does that add to our heating totals? Is it relevant? Uh, it is relevant, and it's really a convention. I mean, uh, you know, agencies use these different uh, periods for different reasons, and, and there are good reasons, but you absolutely need to, to factor in the earlier warming. So, you know, there's a little bit of an uncertainty measure when you go further back, of course, because there are fewer observations, but you could definitely add, say, uh, 0.2 degrees Celsius to that, and maybe even as much as 0.4. So the upshot is February was... I'd say about a degree and a half Celsius above uh, the average for February back uh, 100, 150 years ago. Now, one other thing to keep in mind is that when we're talking about absolute temperature, February is a pretty cool month globally. Um, There's a difference of about four degrees Celsius in the global temperature when you go from January, February to July and August. And that's a big change. And it's simply because there's a lot of land in the Northern Hemisphere and land warms up and cools down more quickly than the oceans do. So the global temperature, if you were just looking at a pot of global temperature, you would see it uh, a buzzsaw effect. It would be rising dramatically in the, in the northern summer, seeking in the northern winter. But th- those are filtered out because the relevant thing is, is the anomaly relative normal. In other words, this February is a lot cooler than any July, but it's the warmest February by far we've had. The previous benchmark, one previous benchmark for high monthly temperatures was also an El Nino year, the winter of 1997-98. Did we beat that this year? 
Oh, we beat it big time, yeah. We beat it by uh, about a half degree centigrade, almost a degree Fahrenheit. So that's one of the most uh, stunning aspects of the warmth this winter. The El Nino itself was comparable in strength to the one in 97-98. So the fact that we beat that one by half a degree is really telling that we're in a literally in a new climate globally. You know, the atmosphere is different. We have a substantially more carbon dioxide. When you compare it to what we had in 97-98, I don't have the number right in front of me, but certainly up substantially. It looks like we've added about two parts per million every year in the last, what's that been, 18 years since then. So it's, it's increased by between 5 and 10 percent. I guess a lot of people are asking, can the worldwide warming we've seen come from just El Nino that develops out of the Pacific? That seems to be what a lot of TV weather news people tell us every day. Well, certainly it's not just El Nino. I, I like to think of El Nino as being a way in which a warming planet expresses that warming. So if you're going to get record global warm years, they will almost always be an El Nino year. It's not always, but, but usually. So El Nino basically allows heat that's trapped in the ocean to enter the atmosphere more readily because El Nino spreads warm water over a bigger swath of the Pacific. This part is an entirely natural process. So when there's an El Nino, warm water covers more of the Pacific tropics and is in contact with the atmosphere. So more of that warmth uh, flows up into the air and the globe warms, uh, usually by a couple tenths of a degree for a strong El Nino. Now, when we have La Nina, the opposite happens. You've got uh, a shrunken area of warm water in the Pacific. So let's put it this way. The ocean sends out less heat into the atmosphere during La Nina, and global temperature typically drops. So that up and down is a natural process, but it's happening on top of this incessant drumbeat of long-term human-produced warming. So you can think of El Nino as being the spikes, La Nina as being the dips, and then these are all happening on this stair step of long-term warming. So it's not all El Nino. In fact, most of the warming, if you compare it to 100 years ago, most of the uh, difference this this month is because of that long-term trend. But El Nino absolutely is the, the cherry on top, if you will, or the, the straw that's breaking the camel's back. And I found it interesting to see from your article that CO2 levels, as measured at Mauna Loa, go up. They go up during an El Nino year and never come back down. Do we know why? They do come up. Um, it's a function of all the things going on in the biosphere. For example, when there's drought going on, there tends to be more carbon released, for, for one thing, because there's more fires, more forests on fire, and that sends a big pulse of carbon into the atmosphere. So as a result, during El Nino, there's more carbon poured into the atmosphere from the land and less during La Nina. So again, that's a kind of predictable effect. Again, the magnitude of that was, was pretty large this, this time around. This was the first year in 2015 that three parts per million were added to the atmosphere in, in just one year. So we're now right at about 400 parts per million globally you know, on a yearly average. We're very close to that. Yeah, that's another very concerning thing uh, when we have these big El Ninos. And we may have more of them, more El Ninos to come in the next 10 or 15 years, which we can talk about later in the program. <laughs> All right, yeah. You know, I remember Dr. Albert A. Bartlett of Colorado spent a lifetime teaching how important and threatening exponential math can be. That's where we get an increase on the increase. And as you've just said, that's sort of what's happening now with greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, emissions, yeah. I don't know for sure that the growth is exponential. There is some exponential component to it, actually. If you look, go back, say, several decades, we were adding about one part per million in the 60s. Uh, by the 80s, it was one and a half parts. 
Uh, in the 2000s, it was about two parts per million, and now this year for the first time it's three parts per million. So uh, when, with the increment growing per year, it is a little bit like that exponential process. So, uh, so again, very disconcerting and not good. You are listening to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest from Colorado, meteorologist and extreme weather guru, Bob Henson. Well, here's one of my worries, Bob Henson. Every time the Earth takes another jump in temperature, a great number of irreversible feedbacks get a push as well. So we, just as you said, we might be going up a staircase step by step, and it only goes up. For example, what is the condition of the Arctic sea ice this winter as it's hot? The Arctic is actually in a funky state this winter. Um, Mark Serres from the National Snow and Ice Data Center called this the strangest year he's ever seen in the Arctic, and he's been following the Arctic for many years and researching the Arctic. I believe both January and February set records for the uh, least amount of sea ice. Perhaps, I don't know if the February numbers are out yet, but anyway, it's been pretty much a record winter for the least coverage of sea ice, which was called extent. And it certainly sets things up for potential trouble this summer in terms of a very, very high depletion, very low coverage of ice. Now, there's not a super strong connection between what happens in the winter and the summer because the summer depends largely on weather, especially the weather in May and June and the amount of sunlight that's reaching the Arctic. Uh, If you have a very cloudy uh, period right when the sun is at its maximum in in late June, then uh, that can actually um, avert the worst losses of sea ice. Uh, Conversely, if it's very sunny and calm and clear up there when you have the most amount of sun, then then that really facilitates the ice loss. So the worst case would certainly be if we have a sunny, bright period in June, July, August, and a lot of melt on top of this very kind of tentative state that the ice is in now, then we would then be perhaps on our way to a a record low amount of ice. But it's certainly uh, in in a, a pretty tentative state for late winter, some fair amount of melting going on already. And yeah, it's, it's one more very disconcerting feature this winter. Well, Bob, tell us a bit more about the remarkable heating that's happened in Alaska this winter and, and the rest of the Arctic. It's been quite warm around the Arctic. For example, uh, uh, Anchorage has had one of its um, warmest winters on record and it's least snowy. One station I paid a lot of attention to is Svalbard, Norway, which sits very close to where the uh, winter ice progresses north of Norway itself. It's actually on an archipelago so kind of between Norway and Greenland, but a collection of islands. And Svalbard, the town, is the northernmost civilian town on Earth. It, it's at 78 degrees north, so way north of the Arctic Circle. And they had a number of days this winter that were 20, 30 degrees Fahrenheit, even 40 above average, and so 20 degrees Celsius. And uh, on average, if you pull the whole winter together, the whole three months from December through February, uh, they were close to 10 degrees Celsius above average. And very few towns on Earth are known to have had that large a departure. It happened at Svalbard a couple winters back, something comparable to this, even a little bit stronger. But it just reflects the amount of warmth that's been poured into the Arctic this winter. That was one of the main factors that pushed this El Nino above what happened in February of 1998. The February of 2016 warmth uh, is really manifested by extreme warmth in the Arctic. A lot of the high latitudes, I should say, were more than 4 degrees C above average in February. Well, that's a wow for me. Now, when it comes to the weather that we experience in the northern hemisphere, it seems like the jet stream is a major factor. And there's been a theory, well, really a series of reports by Jennifer Francis at Rutgers University saying the jet stream has been weakened by changes in the Arctic. What do you think about that? 
been intrigued by the Francis theory, and there have been several other scientists um, contributing, Stephen Vavris from University of Wisconsin, a number of folks kind of pointing to the idea that the loss of sea ice in the Arctic uh, ought to be having some impact on, on mid-latitude and high-latitude weather. And there is an, another group of scientists at the University of uh, Washington and, and other places who argue that it's actually the tropics that are the larger forcing factor that would be controlling what the jet stream's doing. So it's been quite a vigorous debate, interesting debate, and I don't think the dust has completely settled yet. Uh, I do think the Arctic probably, and the state of Arctic sea ice probably have some influence on the northern hemisphere, but I think this winter has been interesting because El Nino uh, has gone up and butted up head-to-head with the influence of sea ice on, on a northern climate. So the past few winters, we've seen a lot of cold in the east. Boy, one of the most dramatic signs of that, New York and Vermont in the winter of 2015, a year ago, they had the coldest winter on record. And to me, in a warming planet, that's really amazing. And uh, uh, it makes me wonder what on earth is going on. How could it be so cold up there? So those multiple cold winters, um, uh, Dr. Francis argues, are related to the lack of sea ice and the relationship among that with the jet stream. So this winter, um, again, with the sea ice being very low, I I was wondering whether we'd get another really cold winter in the Northeast or whether El Nino would tend to predominate. And El Nino tends to make winters in the North and Northeast U.S. quite mild and uh, as well across Canada. So it looks like, for the most part, it's been El Nino uh, in the driver's seat. Uh, It's been very warm across the whole continent, just extreme warmth. We'll have the verdict on the U.S. in a couple of days as to whether it was the warmest winter, but I believe it's going to be very close, if not the yeah, champion. And what's been interesting is we have had a couple of cold intrusions, very sharp ones. Boston had some of the coldest weather it's had in 40 years, but it only lasted a day or two. So perhaps whatever Arctic influence there is is butting up against El Nino. It just got its voice in for a couple of days. But uh, again, I, I do think there needs to be more research on this potential Arctic sea ice connection to the gesture of mid-latitude climate. Uh, you know, the fact that it's been somewhat controversial doesn't mean there's not merit to it, just that it's, uh, sometimes these signals are really difficult to tease out. So did this El Nino manage to break the long California drought as advertised? In part. I think this is a definite yes and no area. Uh, what's fascinating to me is the, the deluges that El Nino has brought to the West Coast have certainly arrived. It's been very wet from central California north all the way to Seattle. But normally you would expect those deluges to be located more like along the whole California coast and then up to, say, maybe Oregon. So they've been displaced northward by several hundred miles. And as a result, you have some really counterintuitive things that have happened. For example, Seattle, which is normally maybe a little bit on the dry side during El Nino, they had the wettest winter in their history uh, on the order of 40 inches of rain. Meanwhile, Los Angeles, through mid-March, has been a little more than 50% of its average, so another dry winter for L.A., which is not good at all, and very much contrary to what people expected from El Nino. In Phoenix, it has not rained as of this recording since January, so a month and a half are completely dry. So El Nino has come through, and a lot of the effects globally have manifested. The one thing that really hasn't, it stands out like a sore thumb in, in the U.S., is uh, it's been unusually dry from Southern California over to Arizona, even into parts of New Mexico and Southern Colorado. And that's especially been true in February and March. So this is not well understood why this has happened. Uh, it runs counter to, to most, if not all, the strong El Ninos we know of. And I just think we're going to have to research it, find out. One ominous connection, though, is that 
the uh, area that this is happening in the southwest, southern California, Arizona, is an area that's pegged to become drier this century as a result of long-term climate change. What we don't know is whether this El Nino is a manifestation of that or it's simply a one-off weirdness with this El Nino. But certainly in the coming decades, that area is going to face increasing issues uh, with dryness, not only maybe lack of precipitation, but whatever rain they get is going to evaporate more readily because of warmer temperatures. So uh, definitely not good news for um, the Southern California area, although they will get a water supply from the Sierra that's been replenished quite well. So that will help at least some. So we've talked about heat records set on land, but it's not just there. Dr. Roy Spencer at the University of Alabama in Huntsville has persistently talked down the threats of global warming. He often interprets satellite data to find the lowest estimates, but even he reports the lower atmosphere is hotter than ever. Tell us about that, Bob. That's right. It was actually uh, February was not just a record on land where we measure temperature and where we live, but also the satellite estimates of temperature in the lowest few miles of the atmosphere. That region was uh, close to a degree centigrade warmer than um, the average from the last 40 years or so, 30 years. So, and then it again beat out the El Nino of 1998. So even in this satellite record, which has been pointed to by a lot of climate skeptics, climate deniers, that has set a record. So even Dr. Spencer uh, said, quote, there has been warming. The question is how much warming there's been. So I think this is, a, you know, maybe a little bit of a tipping point. We'll see. I do think we're going to be seeing continued warming, you know, in, in terms of this stair step. I, I'd like to pull the lens back a little. Uh, first of all, with El Nino, El Nino's usually last only a year or two, and this one has been in place for more than a year. So it's quite likely we'll go into La Nina in late 2016. So we may still set another global temperature record for this year, for 2016. I doubt we will in 2017. We will probably see at least a year of uh, less extreme warmth (laughs) on a global basis averaged. Hopefully people won't say global warming stopped in 2016, because that would be silly. In the longer term, looking, say, out a decade or so, it looks like we've entered something called the positive phase of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. And that's almost like you can think of it as a longer-term El Nino, uh, La Nina, you know, trade-off. It's looking at the whole Pacific, or at least the northern half of the Pacific. There's another version that looks at the, at the entire Pacific, but it measures the tendency toward the ocean patterns that support El Nino. So with this PDO, as it's called, in its positive phase, as it looks like it is now, that would tend to imply we're going to have more El Ninos and fewer La Ninas over the next, say, 10 or 15 years. And if, in fact, that happens, we're going to see more spikes in global warming over the next 10 to 15 years in terms of atmospheric warming. After that, if we go, went to a negative PDO, which at some point we presumably would, then it might level out a bit more and we'd see a bit less warming. And it might be more like the decade of the 2000s, which still had atmospheric warming proceeding, but at a lower pace. So again, the two steps forward and then one step forward, that pattern will continue as the planet continues to warm. But I think the next decade, we're going to see some pretty dramatic rises and some pretty dramatic global records. Uh, maybe 2016, and then maybe again uh, the next time we get a big El Nino, which could be another three to five years, uh, if if history serves as a guide. Although I have talked to a couple of scientists who said, look, at some point in the 2020s or the 2030s, the amount of carbon we put up there is going to override these natural oscillations, as, as we've been talking about El Nino, La Nina. It's just going to be kind of unstoppable, no matter what happens with those systems. Well, I still think we'll have El Nino and La Nina on top of that rise. But indeed, 
the rise induced by, by carbon dioxide, the forcing is continuing to grow. I think the big question looking ahead a couple of decades is, will we get some nonlinear effects, some positive feedbacks? Uh, Arctic sea ice is, is one very strong candidate for that, I would say. The more the Arctic sea ice melts and the more regularly it, it gets depleted in the summer, that's going to absorb more heat into the oceans, and the whole global system will be absorbing increasing amount of heat. So, you know, who knows exactly how that's going to transpire once we get out decades from now. And part of that will depend on what we do, on how we act, and how quickly we act to reduce emissions. You know, uh, we do have the potential to reduce emissions a lot more than we have. Even with technologies we already have at our disposal with uh, solar and wind, we could deploy those far more than we are now. You know, natural gas, for all its problems with fracking and such, and the potential for methane loss, it does produce less CO2. So arguably, there might be some benefit to natural gas in terms of CO2. But absolutely, with solar and wind, uh, we can do a great deal. Obviously, with efficiency, we can do a great deal. You know, regardless of whether we do massive deployment and that, that keeps us short of the 2 degrees centigrade threshold, whether we go over that threshold... Uh, to me, it's really the direction we're headed in terms of what we're doing that matters. And we can prevent even a bad outcome from being a really bad outcome by what we do now. So uh, I think these benchmarks, these global records are really important as um, consciousness raisers. I hope they're not demotivators. I hope they don't make people just shrug their shoulders. Uh, the important thing is to take this seriously and see that we have real potential for real trouble and that we need to act, you know, that it's not too late to act to make a difference. Well, I absolutely agree with that, but I do want to go back to your article to point out that you note there have been some impacts already in this year in places that we seldom hear about, in Vietnam, in Zimbabwe, in Fiji, and I would add in the coral reefs as well. Those are huge problems, yeah. In fact, um, those countries, uh, three countries, Vietnam, Zimbabwe, and Fiji, all had impacts uh, calculated in February that were at least 4% of their gross domestic product. So, uh, in the U.S., that would be the equivalent of, say, five Hurricane Katrinas in one month. So uh, extremely devastating to those countries. Those are accentuated, certainly, by the El Nino. Um, these are El Nino-related impacts, the kinds of things you would expect during El Nino. For example, Vietnam tends to be dry in El Nino, uh, they, but they were extremely dry this time around. Uh, one problem with drought, and one, one of my biggest concerns, I would say, is even when you have natural drought inducers like El Nino, the impact of those is getting worse and worse because of higher temperatures. As temperatures rise, that allows more moisture to escape from the soil. So when you have a drought, even if it's the same level of moisture deficit in terms of rain, the impact's going to be worse because those warmer temperatures are sucking that water out of the soil, and that allows the temperatures to get hotter. And we sure saw that in California in 2015. Um, drought was on par with some of the worst of the last 100 years, but and obviously extension of a multi-year drought, but the temperatures were simply off the charts uh, in, in 2015. Uh, and that increment of heat is going to be a real problem, and it's just going to exacerbate drought starting now. You know, we've seen that with the Vietnam drought, with the Zimbabwe drought, actually all across southern Africa. Historic multi-year drought has been accentuated by this El Nino. Fiji was another place that had a 10% uh, of their GDP hit because of Cyclone Winston. Now, the impact of climate change on tropical cyclones is still undergoing a lot of research, but one thing we do know is when water temperatures are warmer, uh, that's more fuel for whatever hurricanes and typhoons do develop. And when they hit places, that's the potential for more damage. You know, Bob, I find it so frustrating when I do watch TV, as I call it, weather porn, you know, the, the really <laughs> exciting news about weather 
there's just no background, the kind of things you and I are talking about right now, about climate change, and it's part of it. And, you know, for a while, some meteorologists were loudly denying climate change. Has that resistance changed, do you think, or is it still a problem? I can actually say firsthand that it is changing. I, I was uh, speaking a few days ago at a, a workshop for uh, broadcast meteorologists that was sponsored by Climate Central and uh, the Yale Project on Climate Change. And th- that program has had real success the last several years at bringing weathercasters together to sit, sit back for a day and, and listen and interact with top scientists and you know, learn more about climate change to express some of their concerns, uh, things that they hear from, from their viewers and how to, how to address their concerns. And there's just been a fantastic dialogue that's developed. And I think the level of, cl- of climate change skepticism in the weathercast community has gone down pretty sharply. I do think there are the constraints that have always been there. Uh, weathercasters have three minutes, maybe if they're lucky four, uh, to cover the daily weather. And there's just not much time to provide that, that context that, as you point out, is really needed. Uh, I've been an advocate for some time of weathercasters having, say, a climate moment uh, even just once a month to say, here's our monthly average, and once again, it's above normal. Uh, I think you've got to work that in as best you can, and there are weathercasters out there who are doing a great job of that. There's progress in that front. It's been a challenge in other areas. You know, network news did not cover climate change much at all in 2015, even though we had the uh, Paris Agreement, the Paris Accord. The amount of climate change coverage uh, is, has been down over the last several years, and hard to say exactly why, but you know, there could be battle fatigue, you know, there are folks who are just tired of hearing about it, but it ain't going away. And um, again, there are things we can do about it. I'm, I'm very optimistic about the ability to, to reduce emissions globally. And it's a matter of global will, it's a matter of putting this Paris Accord into uh, boots on the ground actions. You know, the, the agreement really was, was landmark, but it was a global voluntary agreement. And that means it's only as strong as people's and, and nations' willpower. It's only as good as, as what we make of it. Uh, it's the potential to be a great agreement, but you know, depending on which way the political winds blow around the world the next year or two, um, we'll just have to see uh, how it unfolds. Indeed. Professor Stefan Ramsdorf from the Potsdam Institute in Germany told an Australian newspaper, we're in a kind of climate emergency now. And that's the way it feels to me and to the scientists that I've been talking to is that we only have a few years to get our act together and... and bring about renewable energy and bring our emissions down? You know, I, I, I would agree that the sooner we act, the better. I think I tend to be someone who says it's never too late to have some impact, there, but there are conversely other things that are almost too late to change. But, you know, I, I don't think there's going to be an obvious tipping point in terms of how we experience the weather and climate. I think there will be a series of, of individual things, and those individual things may grow over time and probably will grow over time. So at any point in this long process, this long slog toward a warmer planet, we're going to have opportunities to to do more, and uh, we're going to have continual surprises and shocks along the way. And whatever we can do to uh, to avert the worst of those is a good thing, I think. Uh, sea level is one real concern of mine, and that's almost the definition of a creeping problem because a few centimeters, you know, or a centimeter or so every decade, you know, adds up over time. And uh, there are certainly cities along the U.S. East Coast that are getting what is laughably called nuisance flooding, but uh, it's happening more and more often. Uh, we had some of the biggest tides in history this fall in, in uh, Charleston and Savannah on the southeastern coast, and those were not even triggered by a major hurricane, but just by you know a moderately strong weather event coupled with a full moon. And 
uh, it's very unsettling for that to be happening. Uh, you know, recurrent flooding in Miami Beach has been a real problem. It's getting worse now and actually is getting some attention from policymakers. But Miami has no ability to build a seawall that's lasting because of the limestone substrate. So that's one of the cities that I'm really concerned about in the longer term. Um, and we'll see that setting in over the next several decades. But in the longer term, uh, there are real, real concerns with keeping cities like Miami and New Orleans viable. So what was nuisance flooding now is going to be progressively worse flooding, I think, uh, in the decades to come. And we can add a lot of Asian cities to that list. Well, cities around the world are built on the coast. Yes, absolutely. Certainly many, many countries around the world and many cities uh, are going to face uh, increasing sea level problems. So we can learn from what they've done in the Netherlands to deal with sea level rise. In many cities, there is infrastructure improvement that can be done. In other places, it's going to be tougher. We're going to have to wrap it up there. Reporting on extreme weather, Bob Henson is never going to be out of a job. He's the author of The Thinking Person's Guide to Climate Change, and he co-authored a standard college textbook, Meteorology Today. Dr. Bob Henson is that rare combination of a meteorologist and a journalist. He's been published all over the world, but my favorite spot to find him is at the Weather Underground blog at wonderground.com. His Twitter handle is at bhensonweather. Find links to the stories we've covered in my show blog at ecoshock.info. Bob Henson, it's been great having you on Radio Ecoshop, and I hope we can have you come back again. Oh, my pleasure, Alex. Thanks very much. Take care. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Look out, the world may warm much faster than we thought. That could create an energy squeeze. It's all in a new big-picture study from Australian researchers. Let's peer into a real future with Professor Ben Hankamer from the Institute for Molecular Bioscience at the University of Queensland near Brisbane, Australia. Ben, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Thank you, Alex. Just the title of your new paper suggests great big topics. I mean, it's trading off global fuel supply, CO2 emissions, and sustainable development. What drove you and your co-authors to take on this research? Uh, what drove us to conduct this research was to analyze factors affecting energy and climate security. Globally, we're facing some very big challenges coming into the future, and we need to understand these if we want to plan into the future. And one of these challenges is that our population is forecast to rise from about 7.4 to about 9.7 billion people by 2050. And to provide for this growing population, we'll have to provide more energy, more food, more water, and also reduce our CO2 emissions by 2050 by quite a large amount. So everything that we do is driven by energy, and the aim of our analysis was to establish how much energy we need into the future and what that means for climate change. And the study has implications beyond energy security as well. It has implications for our environment, social and political stability, because we need energy for everything that we do. So once we know how much energy we need, we can then determine how much CO2 emissions that will result in, and it would also tell us something about the dates that we lock into climate change of, say, 1.5 or 2 degrees C, and what we need to do to transition, say, to renewable systems. Let's start with energy demand. How much more power will Earth's population need by 2050, and how do you know? 
So it really depends on the political choices that we make. So I think the best thing to do is probably to break down this problem. Uh, the global economy is now valued at about $110 trillion per year, and that's a big number. And it's powered by a $6 trillion energy sector. Now, one thing that's perhaps surprising is that 80% of this energy is provided as fuels, and only about 20% is electric. So while good progress is made to supply that 20% electricity sector, say through photovoltaic panels and wind and wave energy, that sort of thing, we have very few solutions for fuels, and we need those if we want to deal with climate change. So coming back to your question, how much power will the Earth's population need by 2050, and how do we know? So we've accurately modeled global energy use over the last 60 years, and we use three key variables to do that, and that's population, uh, which is rising, average energy use per person, and the global economic growth rate. So we need energy to drive our economy, and the more the economy grows, the more energy we require. This provides us with the basis to start forecasting into the future. And so now we come down to really some of those choices. So we could choose to carry on our sort of business as usual track as we have done for the last 60 years. And in that case, we might expect a, a linear increase in energy demand. But the trouble with that is that we leave 50% of the population on less than $2.50 a day. And that's a question of whether that's acceptable or not. And if it's not acceptable, then we have to go down a sort of more pro-growth strategy when we need a lot more energy in order to alleviate poverty. And obviously that will rise uh, in increased emissions as well. So really to power a pro-growth strategy into the future, we'll see rapid rises in CO2 emissions. And well, this will fast track us into a sort of dangerous climate change zone, which the poor are then most vulnerable to. So really what our data suggests is that the best option really is to transition in an orderly manner from fossil fuels to renewables, and this will allow us to provide the energy that we need to drive our economy and alleviate poverty while stabilizing CO2 emissions. So the bigger question is then, can we provide for what we need? And so currently, our fossil fuel resources are about 60 to 150 years worth of supply based on current demand. We can find more, but at a higher price. But in contrast, we get about 5,000 times more solar energy every year which than we need to drive our economy. So making a transition to renewables now would provide us with energy security into the future, which is good for the economy. Well, at the same time, though, as you've said, we have to cut emissions. And by 2050, which is only 34 years away, what sort of emission cuts were set out in Paris in that climate agreement of 2015? So in, in Paris, there was 96 nations who agreed to stay below 2 degrees climate change and aimed to stay below 1.5 degrees, and that was mainly to protect vulnerable island states. So once this agreement is ratified, the international community can plan how to proceed with emissions cuts, and this may be defined through nation-led bottom-up approaches rather than top-down, you know, this is what you've got to do. But the answer to your question regarding the sorts of emissions cuts that we need so CO2 is, of course, a greenhouse gas, and the higher the concentration, the more the world will warm over time. And there's a delay, and it's important to, to realize there's a delay between reaching that CO2 emissions level, which locks us into, say, a 1.5 or 2 degrees temperature increase, and actually reaching that temperature increase. But at that point, when you've decided to lock in at 1.5 or 2 degrees, you have to be in balance with what the Earth can absorb in terms of CO2 and in particularly what the biosphere can absorb. And the numbers tell us that, from other research, that 
the world absorbs about 50% of the emissions from our global energy demand. So roughly speaking, to come back to your question, is ballpark figure is we probably need to reduce our emissions by about 80% by 2050. But it may be even earlier than that. So we may, if if what the model suggests are correct, then by 2020, we might have to have about emissions reductions of 50% if we want to stay below a 1.5 degree climate change level. And if we want to stay below two, it might be about 50% by 2030. And it really depends if you want to go down this pro-growth strategy or whether you want to carry on this business as usual. So it could be 50% in four years from now. It could. If you want to include, and I think this is the... Uh, perhaps a, a safe option to take is you want to plan ahead for poverty alleviation, then according to our model, you would have to allow for something like 50% emissions reductions in, in four years, according to that modeling data. And of course, you can say, we're not going to do that, but then you have to also make the assumption that you will keep people in poverty. So what kind of studies have been done to project the impact of these kind of drastic fossil fuel cuts during times of rising demands? Are nations at stake or even the whole international security system? You mentioned security. Yeah, I mean, energy security is critical to every nation. and We need high availability of energy and also accessible energy resources. So what that means is we need to be able to access fuels, but we also need suitable fuels to access, i.e. with the right CO2 emission standards. And really, you know, nations can't risk energy security as modern economies would struggle quickly. You know, for example, previous oil crises resulted in long queues of getting uh, gasoline very quickly. So if we want to transition from fossil fuels, and the climate data suggests that we have to, then we will need large-scale renewables quickly, in good time, to make sure that we have that stability and security in place. And then sadly, the data shows us we don't have much time. It's a really daunting task. Now, a couple of headlines about your study said the world could warm much faster than we thought, and other projections have managed to place the rise of 2 degrees C at the end of this century. Ben Hankamer, what have you done differently that shows it may come sooner than that? So let me be clear about this. So what we modeled was energy use and CO2 emissions. And based on this, what we can, we can identify dates at which we lock into a particular temperature change. So that the numbers that we quote in the paper are that by 2020, we may have burnt all the fossil fuels we can burn uh, and stay below 1.5 degrees centigrade. And uh, by 2030, we might have locked into the emissions that we're allowed to burn by two degrees climate change. But locking into climate change is not the same as actual warming. The Earth will take a while to respond. So our model you know, tells us that by that time we will burn those fuels, but I'm, I'm not a climate scientist, so I can't tell you exactly by which point the, the Earth would have warmed to that level. Right. We've been told there's about a 30-year delay, so that right now we're experiencing perhaps uh, 1985 to 95 emissions, and we'll find out later what happens with the emissions we're burning now. That's right. But you then obviously have a very tight time window to decide if we think that 1.5 is dangerous or 2 is dangerous, then we have to make those decisions in, right now in order to, to deal with them in this 5 to 15-year window. And I'd like to look more deeply into the concept of personal energy use, which you developed in the paper. Here in North America, we like to think personal energy use is going down as cars become more fuel efficient, bike use increases, things like LED light bulbs slash utility bills. Is that assumption wrong? 
No, that is actually correct. I mean, over the last 20 years, on average, we have become more efficient at producing things. So that's energy use per unit of GDP. And uh, it is about a saving of about 0.6% per year. So we actually are becoming more efficient at making things. But the, the trouble is this, is that as we become more efficient at making things, these things become cheaper and so we save money. And with the money that we save, we buy more stuff. And so in the end, we still use the same amount of energy or more energy because there's the energy not only in the production but also the embodied energy in the products. And a good example is smartphones. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, perhaps people didn't have so many smartphones. Now everybody's got one because we can afford it. And there will be other things like that in the future. And so energy use per person has been rising while we've become more efficient at making stuff. All right. Now, I am assuming that a huge portion of demand for personal energy will come as billions of people in the developing world get motorbikes, electric appliances, all the things we take for granted, was that a big factor in your calculations? It was. I mean, the last 60 years saw a broadly linear increase in global energy demand. And we think this is because a fraction, i.e., that is about 4.7 billion of the 7.4 billion people that we have on the planet in the G20 use 82% of the global energy. It's quite a shocking number. So the G20 uses 82% of global energy. But 50% of the population, both inside and outside of the G20, live on less than $2.50 a day. And so they don't have access to much energy. So now imagine if globally we introduce poverty alleviation policies to lift those 3.7 billion people from $2.50 a day to a standard of living that we accept as normal. You might expect roughly a doubling of energy demand. And then, of course, that the population is set to increase from 7.4 to 9.7 billion people as well. And after taking these things into consideration, our model suggests that we may need up to three times more energy by 2050 than we do now. So people may criticize this and say it's not what we've seen so far, and that's true. We haven't. It's been a slower increase. But then they must have to answer the question of whether it's acceptable to leave 50% of the population in poverty. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest Ben Hankamer from the University of Queensland in Australia. I guess you've kind of got a favorite in the race for this transition to renewable energy. You mentioned solar power. You think that is our major answer coming? I think solar power is one of the major answers coming. We have vast solar energy resources, and people don't often realize this. So the amount of solar energy that we get every year is about 5,000 times the amount that we need to drive the global economy. So there is not a shortage of solar energy. I mean, there are other renewable technologies that we can use, but this is clearly one of them. You also mentioned, though, that a lot of our fossil fuel use is in liquid form, especially for transportation. Why don't you tell us about the Solar Biofuels Research Centre in Australia? So you have to think about what are the potential fuel options that you have. And if you want to produce fuel at a globally significant level, what you need to do is hook into a large enough energy supply to produce it. And as I've just said, the sun is the largest energy source that we have. So what we're using is we're using algae, which are photosynthetic organisms and catch sunlight. They tap into this huge solar energy resource and produce the feedstocks for fuel production. You can make a whole range of fuels from uh, biodiesels, crude oils. You can make hydrogen and methane and ethanol. There's a whole range of different biofuels that you can make. And so our focus is on developing systems which are more efficient at producing such fuels. Are you already producing fuel? We are. 
our aim really is not to scale commercially. Our aim is to de-risk scale up. So we do work at the lab and the pilot scale. And the reason is that as you scale up, it becomes more expensive to do those trials. And so you really need to show that you've got good techno-economic and life cycle analyses done to help industry scale and choose the right options. Now, talking about solars, I do have listeners who post comments saying renewable energy can never solve the future demand for energy. They point out technologies like wind and solar come from cheap fossil power right now and need to be rebuilt every 30 years or so, and not to mention the carbon costs of their manufacture and all the minerals we'll need. Do we have a real solution for this conundrum? Yeah, I don't really think this is a conundrum. Um, all energy have a fixed all energy systems have a fixed life and will need replacing. So as we gradually scale up renewable energy systems, we provide an increasingly secure long-term energy supply. And this will then be available to power our economy, wealth generation, and infrastructure replacement. And furthermore, the embodied energy is less if we use renewable resources. So I would say to your listeners, yes, we can supply energy, with renewable resources. In fact, our resources of solar energy far exceed what we have in terms of fossil fuels. So the, the fossil fuel deposits that we have recorded are roughly in the 60 to 150 times our global energy demand, and that's sort of in total. We can find more, but then it becomes more expensive to get them. And in contrast, every year we get 5,000 times the global energy demand from solar energy. Well, I guess in the end, most of us want to know, and I guess it may be hard for you to answer this, but Ben Hankemer, how hot do you think the world will become and how fast? So I'm not a climate scientist, and so I feel that I don't really think I should answer that question. What, I, what we have done is we've modeled CO2 emissions, and as I say, depending on the strategy that we move forward with in terms of poverty alleviation or not, we will have uh, different rates of, of global warming. But it's really up to the climate modelers to tell us, based on these emissions, what level of warming we can expect by when. But it is possible that we, we get feedback loops and those sorts of things. Well, I was going to ask you about a blog called The Arctic News, where a fellow named Sam Karana added up the increase in emissions, and he tossed in various feedbacks to predict warming at least 3.9 degrees C by 2026, just 10 years from now. What do you think about such a big jump in land temperature? Is it possible in the near term? The answer is, again, not being a climate scientist, I'm not sure that I can answer it properly. But what I would say is, you know, as I said, the modeling that we've done is on CO2. Then, of course, there's other greenhouse gas emissions that, that will contribute to a temperature rise. Uh, we've just had reports again today that uh, there has been very substantial Arctic glacial ice melting that results in greater warming of the oceans because the oceans are darker and less reflection from the ice. We've heard about melting of permafrost and the release of methane. Methane has a greenhouse gas emissions equivalent of 20 times CO2. So you end up in these sort of potential for positive feedback loops. And that's why climate modeling is so important. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, how quickly. But um, as we develop those models, we'll have a better idea moving forward. I, I don't know the answer to this 3.9 degrees C, but I think it's it's worth considering this as a, as a possibility. You know, reading your paper, I could see several narrow passages that we have to get through to survive as a civilization. I mean, we have to cut carbon at the same time energy demand is growing, and, and we also want to get people out of poverty. 
Do we have any idea when these key tests will develop, or is that up so many variables we can't tell? Well, so we have a critical bottleneck right now. As I said, you know, our modeling suggests that we will have locked into 1.5 as close as 2020, maybe, and possibly two degrees by 2030 if we have this poverty alleviation track. It'll be a bit longer if we don't. But once that carbon budget's been expended, we, we have to basically bring our emissions in balance with what the Earth can absorb, which is 50%. So basically, in terms of the bottleneck, we have about, according to our calculations, somewhere in the order of 5 to you know, 15, 20 years to reduce our emissions by 50%. So this is, this is a huge problem. And I don't know if you can quite imagine how we're going to change over energy systems to that degree in that period of time. And I think really what's critical right now is international leadership on this, bringing our emissions under control to deal with climate change. is like turning around the tanker. It will take time and uh, whether we have enough time remains to be seen. The other thing is, I think it depends on perspective. You know, like if you live in the Philippines and you're faced with the massive storms they've had this year, or you're on an island nation and you're risking your survival based on sea levels, then these things are more urgent than perhaps uh, a Western society where we can afford to, you know, put a new air conditioner in or something like this. So the the Paris Agreement was a really important first step in dealing with these bottlenecks. But now we need strong international leadership on an issue on this issue. We need cool heads. And I think we need people with courage in an international scale project to meet this challenge. Yes, I feel like people are kind of waiting to see what the other country will do, and that's not going to work. I wonder, as we wrap up here, is there a message in your work that I've missed or anything that you would like to add for our listeners? So there is. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that you can do sort of at the individual level to the international level. I mean, first, we all have a vote. So my advice to those of you concerned about climate change is to use it wisely. The second is that we're increasingly connected economically and socially and environmentally, and each of us can take action at different levels. And many of these actions are beneficial to you. You know, installing solar panels a few years ago has resulted in us not paying electricity bills since, which has been great. And through investments like this, many by many people, photovoltaics have come down in price, making them accessible to people with lower income brackets. The third thing, you can check if your pension schemes invest in fossil fuels, and if you prefer not to, you can adjust your plan. So that's something else that can be done. You can support renewables in other ways if you if you choose to, but the other thing that is perhaps one of the really important issues is that the International Monetary Fund estimated that we provided about $500 billion in fossil fuel subsidies in 2008. So that's about 10% of the energy market, and it's a huge number. And the question is whether governments can't use a cost-neutral approach where instead of providing these subsidies to fossil fuels, they actually use it in a strategic manner to transition to renewables. And finally, I think the thing that we need to look at is that we very seriously need emissions reduction strategies in terms of um, regulation, so carbon tax. It's often not a popular subject. It's seen as being expensive in a tax failure to do that is going to be much more expensive in the long term. Yes, we don't have much time. We've been talking about the coming crunch of energy demand during a period of emissions reduction. All that and more is found in the new paper published in the Open Access Journal. Anyone can read it, PLOS1, and it's under the title, Trading Off Global Fuel Supply, CO2 Emissions and Sustainable Development. I'll put a link to that and other articles in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Our guest has been Professor Ben Hankimer from the Institute for Molecular Bioscience at the University of Queensland, Australia. Thank you so much for your help, Ben. 
Thank you for your time, Alex. Those are the choices. Let half the world's people live in poverty a while longer and keep up our energy-intensive lifestyles for maybe an extra 10 years. Then we all struggle to survive with rising seas, heat waves, drought, fires, and weather so unstable crops and species are doubtful. Or the world's leaders and peoples somehow wake up from the fog. We begin the war on carbon emissions right now to make the transition to a low-energy, all-renewable world. To make the transition to a low-energy, all-renewable world. It won't be the same life. It won't be easy. We have just four years to cut our emissions in half. It's beyond the days of worry now. It's do or die. I'm Alex Smith, and thank you for listening. Here's a quick clip from an interview with Stefan Ramsdorf. He's the German super scientist from the Potsdam Institute, currently a visiting scholar in Australia. Phil Stubbs of the Australian program TheEnvironmentShow.com caught up with him there. So, Stefan, is the long, hot summer that we've um, been experiencing connected to climate change? Yes, it is. It's part of a general warming trend, which has increased the number of heat records around the world quite dramatically. We have looked at this at our institute, and we now get five times more monthly heat records around the world than you would in an unchanging climate. And, of course, in Sydney... We have just experienced a record-breaking long spell of temperatures above 26 degrees that's been going on for more than five weeks now and has doubled the previous record long spell of such warm temperatures. And nationwide in Australia, a new record for March temperatures was set that was a full degree centigrade warmer than the previous record. Those are quite stunning numbers. It's not just here in Australia, is it? Because um, globally, we've we've had uh, record-breaking years um, for temperature globally, and and in fact, I've heard it said that global warming is going into overdrive. Is it in fact speeding up? Well, we had 2014 set a new global heat records. We had 2015, another new global uh, hottest year on record, and now we have the beginning of 2016 coming out with these really stunning numbers. The February this year was a full 1.35 degrees warmer than the climatological baseline period in the middle of the 20th century. And up until uh, last September, we had never had an anomaly of more than one degree. And now we are suddenly at 1.35 degree. That's the biggest jump upward that we have seen. Stefan, your own country of Germany has made significant shifts away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. Can you give the listener a sense of what's happening in Germany? Yeah, I think the German government has for many years been very aware that we are facing a climate crisis. You could actually call it a climate emergency. And the way to stop global warming is to get out of fossil fuels. And uh, I think Germany has made some pretty good progress together with other countries like Denmark. Just to give you a number, the gross electricity production in Germany last year came 30% from renewable sources. And that's up from nearly nothing about 15 years ago. And if you look at Europe as a whole, 
the investments into new electricity generating capacity in Europe last year went to 77% into renewables. So the age of fossil fuels is clearly coming to an end and investors are moving away from that and investing in renewable energy because they know that is where the future lies.